1: iron dripping longing on those screws attached to you. Wait. I wait and listen. A moth with sickly wings whom you stroke back to life. Hum again. Dare I switch you off hot sun in the night when I sleep. Star fallen on my doorstep, you came just in time. Unbox me. Tear the tape from my mouth. Cut me open. I used to love the man, and he was unspeaking, mannequin, unlifelike, but you. I haven't felt this since. How did you know I was waiting for you before I did?
0: That was the voice of Shalise Van Wingard, who's in the studio with me today. This is 3CR Spoken Word. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, Shalise has a show coming up in the Fringe Festival this year very soon, it's called Objectophilia. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, that was a piece from Objectophilia, which is about a a woman, a niece, who falls in love with a lamp. It's a one-woman show with a cast of two, me and Riley, the lamp I fall madly in love with.
0: Riley is the name of the lamp?
1: Riley is the name of the lamp, yeah. Riley is um, my love for the 60 minutes of the show. Um, and it takes place when Anissa's boyfriend goes away for a business trip and um, she gets awakened to her sexuality, really. It's um, it's the queer story you haven't had the guts to investigate yet. Did
0: you do a lot of research?
1: A ton, a, a lot, yeah. The show started off actually as a joke where um, myself and a friend were talking about how funny it would be to be in a relationship with a lamp, but it wasn't until I did the research that I realised that it was actually a very, very real thing, um, and there are communities of people who are deeply and romantically involved with objects as people are with people, and that's when I started taking the project a little bit more seriously, um, and I was doing a lot of research on people's stories and the way that they, um, the way that our society shuns the marginalised um sexualities all throughout history and this is just a sexuality that hasn't really come to the surface of the media except for um you know spectacular sensationalized women marrying the Eiffel Tower and whatnot which are actually spokespeople for the objectum sexual community so it's been a huge huge journey for me challenging in my own assumptions and my own judgments and breaking open my own definition of what love really is There are a couple of people I've read about who fall deeply in love with bridges. This one person said that um, the most intimate they've felt with a a being really is um, when they were standing on this bridge and they could feel the tension of the um, force of the bridge, the structure holding together, and that was the greatest, you know, romantic tension that they had felt. and the woman who now calls herself uh, Erica Eiffel, because she um, has wedded herself to the Eiffel Tower, her first love um, was when she was nine and it was actually a bridge in her local hometown. And she didn't realise she was in love with this bridge until um, the, a flood came and destroyed the bridge. And she was just as heartbroken as she described all of her friends in high school and primary school were about um, breaking up with their lovers.
0: And how were those people treated by their communities?
1: Usually shunned. They all have stories that are so just the queer story, really. When I was reading their stories, I thought to myself, this is what it's like being gay and not being accepted or being genderqueer and not being accepted. It's, It's that same level of authenticity that they write with and that same level of pain as well that I really resonate with. They've got all their stories of being shunned, being rejected, but having the precious few supporters that have gotten them through up to the point where they could finally flourish and accept their own sexuality and find a community that's like them.
0: Did you find that you were changing the script the more you researched?
1: Totally, 100%. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a show about projection and narcissism. As I was researching, I knew that... Though I had room to play and to experiment, and this is such a dynamic topic to work with, the relationship between a human and an object. And of course there's projection there, just as there's projection you know, in human relationships. But I had to delve deep into my own question of what love really is and what the use of love is. And it stopped becoming about a woman being in a relationship with an object. And it started becoming about... A woman having suppressed herself for years because she didn't accept her true, authentic self, and the reawakening of that through the arrival of Riley. So it's it's a way more universally human story than the sensational gag of aha, you know, a woman is in love with a lamp. It's been the greatest and funnest journey of my poetry so far. I think this play um, because I got to explore a completely different field which is the object metaphors that I haven't even thought of before ways in which an object can be alive is just rich for poetry and though my traditional form does fall quite a bit in literary Shakespearean style I did borrow from that because I wanted to uh, add a little bit of romanticism in there and really emphasize that um, olden um, dreamscape that's really important but at the same time, I think the disjointedness of the poetry that's in objectophilia as well has been fantastic to experiment with as well, which is what something that's been leaking into my poetry over the last couple of years has been that scramble script, cutting everything, experimentation. And my favourite point to work with is the mix between uh, contemporary experimenting and, you know, 1800s romanticism. And what, what's the meeting place there? That's that's where I feel most alive.
0: Did you have any contemporary inspirations?
1: I did have some local inspirations. Uh, one would be uh, Reverse Butcher and Kylie Subski. Their work has been a phenomenal inspiration for me in terms of what's possible in experimentation, uh, as well as from a spoken word perspective, I always love the romantic poetry of Andrea Gibson and the religious poetry of Levi the Poet um, from the US. But as well, I have read poetry from objective sexuals themselves who have posted them online, and from that I was able to borrow uh, an authentic voice. And then I also did some research going back to ancient Greece, uh, the myth of Pygmalion, uh, myth of Narcissus, and the way they're told as well. Scott Wings is definitely a huge influence. He, he has given me invaluable advice. And I'm being directed by Chris Lynch, who's also an incredible poet and director and theatre maker. They are real experts in their craft and I'm happy to be mentored by them.
0: Why a lamp of all the objects?
1: It started, it started again with the conversation that I had with my mate where I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought this could be interesting. But I decided to stick with a lamp because of the metaphorical value of falling in love with light um, and metal. There's a line where she says, to love you is to accept that you have no lips. To love you is to love light and glass and lightning and metal like the metal in my blood. And the fact that the lamp itself... Uh, is is a, It's a carrier of energy. It's, it's a carrier of an electric current that uh, beautifully mirrors the human body. That brings a really strong mirror and a parallel that was ju- juicy to work with. I thought it was a play about projection and control to start off with. And I loved the ability of switching a lamp on and switching it off at will, being able to interact with it. And then when you have enough, you j- can just discard its life force just by switching off a PowerPoint.
0: Where's the play on?
1: So the play is on in the Lithuanian Club in the Son of Loft Theatre in the Fringe Hub uh, in North Melbourne. So that's from the 14th of September until the 21st, uh, excluding Monday. Uh, Get a little bit of a break there. And it's on from 7.45. It goes for an hour. uh, On Sunday, though, it's on one hour earlier. So that's 6.45.
0: Well, thank you for coming in today. And uh, best of luck with the show.
1: Thank you, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Thank you. you can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy.
2: Or online at 3CR.org.au forward shop.
1: Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
2: The last will of the Tiger. When you have stolen my skin from my entity and remove the roar from my life, O oh, hunter, wield that skinning knife with some grace, a little skill. For I to have hunted and killed many, many, many times, but every kill was a prayer and praise of the Creator. My movements were always quick, clean, merciful, such is the way of true believers. But do you now, hunter, slice, slash, and cut clean? I pray only that you leave no part of me behind to be eaten by the jackal and the hyena, for I have ruled this forest on behalf of the creator himself, and there is no honor in a king becoming carrion. So take the sacred color from my coat, send it back to the maker of sunsets. So take the sacred color from my coat, send it back to the maker of sunsets, take the darkness of my stripe and return it to the shadow and the undergrowth and the night, for that is where it was obtained. Take the white from the fur of my belly and send it back to a new ice age that it returned to avenge me. Send my roar back to my maker, that he fill the heavens with my rage at this shabby end for a true king ordained by God himself." Send my claws to the young of the rich and the high born to save them from their own nightmares. Send my teeth to Tibet that their aspirations for freedom find new teeth. Send my bones to China that they find a cure for the fear that builds such great walls. Send my fat to Singapore that they learn to make a balm that is mine not merely a name. Send my shit to the alchemists, for that is the only substance they have not yet tried in their efforts to invent gold. Give my trails to whoever shall have them, but hang on to my eyes, you puny murderer, that your tribe might know that you did not fell a creature beneath you, that I looked you in the eye and did not flinch when you shot me. Instead, I am turned away, released from the cancer of your footprint."
0: You are tuned to Community Radio 3CR on 8.55am. I am Brendan Bonsack on the Spoken Word Program this week. And that was the sonorous voice of Amit Dahi Abadshah, whom we are fortunate enough to have visiting from India again this year. Welcome, Amit.
2: Thank you, Brendan. Lovely
0: to be here. That's an amazing poem. What inspired that?
2: You know, I uh, come from a village that's about 100 kilometers from Delhi. And I must confess to you that Delhi is as foreign a place to my culture as is Melbourne. It's just that the people are less judgmental in, in Melbourne, which is why I enjoy reading poetry here so much. When I was a child, I used to visit my mother's, uh, mother's house in Delhi, and her house was full of sparrows. In 40 years, the development of Delhi has wiped out the sparrows from Delhi. And today's irony is that the people who could not save the sparrow are talking about saving the tiger. But the truth is that we are simply incapable of saving the tiger. We are cursed, and I promise you we will be witness to the extinction of the tiger in our own lifetimes. A good ecosystem consists of wetlands, grassy plains and meadows that border the deep dark forest. The wetlands are necessary to protect plains and meadows. The plains and meadows are important for the survival of the deer because it's a creature of flight. It needs to escape the predator to breed in large numbers. We've taken the wetland for rice. We've taken the plains and meadows for wheat and sugarcane. The deer is forced into the forest where even the village dogs dine on venison like kings every night. And this is what's killing the tiger. Unless we can make the spiritual transition and surrender some rice to wetland again, some plains and meadows from wheat and sugarcane to grassland, we won't save the tiger. My parents were both freedom fighters, Brendan, and from them I learned uh, to not just look at issues but to also see the, the, the small truths that define the issues of our time. In what period were they fighting? This is before partitioning of India, when we had independence, when the Brits left at the end of the uh, Second World War. I actually have a poem that's dedicated to them, if you like. It's called, uh, Whose Republic? One by one, turn by turn, the cat and the bat and the crow and the rat have taken my city. One by one, turn by turn, the cat and the bat and the crow and the rat have taken my city. Insomnia rules the night, and fear of the siren, and the flasher rule the day. And that broad-promised highway into the future is taken up by the motorcades of the politician, the shaker and mover, the power broker, the wheeler-dealer, the spin doctor, the troubleshooter, leaving only a tiny lane for we the people to navigate our way precariously ahead. In seventy years, we the people have been broken and tamed, The have-nots have been bought with false promises. The haves have been bought with tax loopholes. The middle class is ritually slitting its own throat upon the sharp edge of the credit card. And the last of the freedom fighters are breathing bravely on life support systems. And we, the children of the freedom fighters, we are doubly damned and doubly doomed. For we have not learned to look the other way or turn the other cheek. So shoot me thrice when my time comes. Once in the gut to balance the pain of so much hunger and unequal living. Once in the heart for it was a fickle thing and always too easily broken. And once in the head for always thinking the impossible and dying to make it happen.
0: Do you think there's hope for the future in, in the young people?
2: I think so. The notion that today's generation are irresponsible, immature, superficial, that's not true. Today's young people are extremely creative. They are capable of great dynamism. They're actually more evolved creatures than, than we were. Uh, there was an Indian philosopher, Sri Aurobindo, who said that there is coming a new man who will be capable of perfect perfection. Uh, we can only think about perfection, but he said that they will be capable of it every time. They'd get things right first time. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, that thought, that idea. And I see glimpses of it everywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Do you carry your
0: village with you everywhere
2: you go? <laughs> I think so. My, my children certainly think I'm a messy villager. Always tidying up after me.
0: And what about your parents? How how did they influence you, do you think?
2: Um, My father, as a freedom fighter, was almost a professional jailbird. He spent so much time in prison that um, it influenced his habits and his frugality for the rest of his life. Lived a very simple Spartan life. Um, He was the son of a great and powerful landlord but his grandfather disowned him legally, his father disowned him legally to save his land. The deterrent punishment in those days was if a member of your family was a freedom fighter, then they auctioned off your land. If you were part of the agrarian society. I think the British thinking was that if they could keep it as an urban movement, they had the forces and manpower to control it. But if it went rural, then this is not known Brendan, that India supplied the maximum number of soldiers in the Second World War. We also had the highest number of casualties. But if you go through the United Kingdom, you will find monuments to every single class and section of society that uh, fought in the war, except for the Indians. So they wanted to keep the uh, freedom movement out of the rural areas. My grandfather... I asked him about it, and he says, well, the next generation these days goes to the disco. We like going to prison uh, for freedom. That was our, you know, big buzz. And um, so he was was in prison for a long time. Uh, Later on, when the freedom movement ended, he found he was still alive. uh, While he was great martyr material, he was not martyred. He didn't know what to do with his life for a long time. It's constantly fighting against the system, against corruption, other people's battles. My mother used to say she had five children. The eldest gave her the most trouble. Um, He had this tiny little handwriting where he'd fill every inch of space on paper because there was very little paper in prison. And that's where he learned to, you know, uh, cover every inch. So he'd write one way and then turn the paper over and write between the lines the other way things like that, uh, used to uh, spin his own cotton yarn every day for one hour, and then exchange it for cloth, and he only wore that cloth because he learned that from Gandhi. Uh, he was a true, true Gandhian, a very incorruptible man, very simple man. I don't think he died very happy uh, with the way things were shaping
0: up. And what was his relationship with you?
2: Uh, You know, he he was so busy fighting other people's battles that he was very little with us. And he was always fighting the battles of underprivileged people, disenfranchised people, people who were the victims of uh, high-handedness and authority. Uh, He was feared by contemporary politicians because he had suggested to Mahatma Gandhi that uh, the Congress Party should not be a political party after Freedom, because they had an unfair advantage being part of the Freedom Movement itself. And that made him very unpopular in the Congress. So they uh, uh, moved to have him removed from the Congress. But he resigned of his own accord before that. Uh, We grew up in this very, very elegant poverty. Uh, So there's no money for toys, but he gave us the best of camping equipment. And all our holidays were in the wilderness, which didn't cost. So we learned to love nature, and I think I owe him a lot. Taught me outdoor survival at a very young age. Later on in life, I taught outdoor survival as, a, as part of my livelihood. Made a good thing of it. What about your mother? My mother was, was amazing. Her name was Saral, uh, which means simple. And she was very simple. One time she came out of prison and she went to uh, Shantini Ketan. Her father sent her there. So she asked him, she said, would you would you write a letter to my father uh, asking him to let me marry this freedom fighter I want to marry? And Dvar said, no. That's your job. You want to marry him. I don't want to marry him. So she said, in his family, they have very martial names, very warlike names, Ran Singh, Shir Singh, Sangram Singh, All these are words of war. So will you give me a nice name for one of my children? So he gave her a book called Shashir Kabita. And in that there's a character called Amit. Uh, It's a tragic character, but uh, he said, call one of your children Amit. When my mother decided to call me Amit, my dadi, that's my father's mother, said, nothing doing, what is this? Sounds like a girl's name. Uh, I've decided to call my grandson Sangram. My mother said, no, I don't want him to grow up like everyone else. And I will not give my son a martial name. So my grandmother asked her, what does it mean? She said, it means infinite. And she had a hell of a job trying to explain to my grandmother what infinity meant. (laughs) Uh, uh, She was very, very simple. She could take the simplest ingredients and create a wonderful meal. And by the way, I wrote my first poem when she was in a coma. It was in Hindi. It was about the, about the morning sounds that mothers make that wakes the house. Chidiyon ka uday ka gayan, chalakte dood ki jhag. Katar katar kar kate mai chap chap saag. Jitna saral jiwan apna, utna saral raag. It says that uh, the sounds of the birds woken by my mother's movements, her morning sounds, the sound of the froth in the milking pail, sloshing in the milking pail, the chopping of the mustard greens to make the sarson sag, the mustard sag. These are the simple sounds of my mother's life and it is these simple sounds that make our song of life also simple.
1: I think writing is the best medicine that you know can heal you so quickly. I want to talk about issues that we have in common between us because i recognize that in people they want this sense of community the sense of belonging this sense of yes he knows what i think about he knows what i'm talking about it was poetry by the workers for the workers about the workers work it's just about facing those truths in your life don't put away your story be the puzzle not the piece this is
0: spoken word on 3cr community radio
1: don't get me started
2: this poem is called, Black and White. Um, I don't think that these issues are, are typical to Australia. I think they're everywhere across the planet, even in my own country in India. But it's important to address this. You know, all our poems can't be about love and the full moon and the Taj Mahal. We need to write about the important issues of the day. Um, black and white. I just wanted to walk on a large, empty field A guy from a powerful gang asked me to leave I would not yield He asked me if I were white or black My mind went blank Not white blank or black blank But surprise blank Mystified blank A touch embarrassed blank Curious blank Even a slight furious blank I am visiting from India, where there are a thousand shades of human skin, not just white and black and there are fifty weak shades of grey between. Unlike your emotional landscape, like a woods in winter polarized permanently into a leafless state of black and white, I do not need to belong to any gang to walk upon a beautiful Australian field. Do not ask me if I am black or white, I will not answer. I will not yield, you know, polarity is the oldest political skill. It exists in nature. Uh, it's a wonderful sense that the human mind has uh, to make sense out of uh, confusion, to make uh, sense out of something unfamiliar. So if you suddenly found yourself in a forest, which is not your natural environment, and there were a large number of people there, the ones who would survive would be the ones who had great sense of polarity because their minds would be organizing this, all the all sensory inputs from the forest into high and low, green and brown, wet and dry, uh, noisy and quiet. Yeah? And by polarizing this information, they would quickly be able to map the contours of that new environment and then find out which place is safe, which place is unsafe, which place is fruitful, which is barren. And they're the ones who would survive, the ones who have polarity. It's a, it's a skill that hunters use. The hunted use it. The predators use it. We all have it. But sadly, politicians are the ones who most abuse this skill of polarity. They don't use it to solve problems. They use it to create problems that work to their disadvantage by dividing people. Uh, politicians are are very insecure people they feel threatened all the time and and we as a society i think fail because we have not learned how to work with politics we haven't learned how to work with governments Go- a government is like a large large massive blind elephant if you learn how to control an elephant then you can get things done an elephant is a very very powerful animal it can if it agrees to work alongside you it can um, move forests. It can make change possible. But let's take some responsibility for our inability to work with government because we haven't learned to speak the language of government. We simply don't know how government works. Government can do great things. And it's just not right to blame them for everything, Brendan, because we too have an obligation to map government. To find out how this machinery of government works and to learn to speak their language
0: without making them insecure. Do you think the media has a big role to play in stopping us from learning that language? There there, there was a time when, when I thought that
2: the media was a useful instrument of society. In those days, the news was interspersed with some advertising. It contained some advertising. Today, the news is the wrapping paper for the advertising. That's the purpose of the news, to contain the ads and deliver them to you. I think media needs to be ashamed of itself.
1: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976.
0: You've been a poet for what, 20 years. 25 years. 25 years. Um, I think you described yourself as a, as a working poet, 25 years. Yes. Yeah. What have you learned in that time?
2: poet writes only half the poem and the other half is completed by the listener. A really good poem is based on the principle of resonance. So on one side you have a throat that is trembling with a secret or a sacred truth and on the other side an ear that is aching with thirst for that truth. So the resonance between
0: the throat and ear is poetry. That means you could find poetry in in anything as long as there's that resonance.
2: Absolutely. You know, uh, I write every day. So this thing about some divine light is going to descend into your head and then you will sit down in an enlightened moment and create a poem is is not for me. For me, uh, poetry is like carpentry or masonry. I sit down and I write a poem every day. But then I'm not obsessed with quality, uh, Brendan. You know, for me, it's a a, a manual thing. It hasn't made me rich, but it's made me happy and comfortable. A confession to you, I think I have more luck than talent as a poet. So in 2003, uh, my early writing was all about the environment. and An organization in Philadelphia called the Senior Environment Corps Center in the Park, Germantown, asked me to be their Poet Laureate, and I accepted. So I wrote to this friend of mine saying I was very disappointed when they honored me that there wasn't a single Indian person, Indian face uh, there to share that moment with me. And my friend wrote back to me saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. In your own country, publishers don't want to publish poetry. Booksellers don't want to sell it. You go to the other side of the world to pick up an honor for yourself. Which Indian poet has seen your face at his or her poetry reading? And when I came back, I realized it was true. I went to one reading where in a hall for 300, there were like three people to listen to a really gifted poet. In another, there was a book launch and no one showed up. I had to emotionally blackmail 15 people into showing up and buying the book. This is in India? In India, Mm. in Delhi. So I decided to do something about it. And what I learned from farming, I grew up as a farm boy in, in Haryana. Um, we, it's a village of farmers and soldiers. And my state has farmers, soldiers, and one poet in the English language. So, Which is you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and anyway, so I um, decided to start a poetry movement called Delhi Poetry. But to organize it the way a farming activity is planned, you know, give myself small, measurable objectives, break down the whole thing. So I give myself three objectives. One, the Delhi poetry would give the National Capital Region 30 readings of poetry a month across the NCR, either through Delhi poetry itself or through other people. But cause and promote 30 readings of poetry a month across the NCR where people could just attend poetry for free. Second, to honor 100 contemporary poets as the living treasure of Delhi. I think the dead take up too much, the space of the living. We do not honor our contemporary poets enough. And third, by the year 2024, to enable 100 poets to earn a taxable income from poetry alone. So 30 nights of poetry, 100 poets to be honored, and uh, taxable income for 100 poets, all three are measurable. And by announcing them as a written mission statement, I made sure that I'd burnt my bridges, I couldn't backtrack. Because if I didn't achieve these, then people would laugh at me. So we did the 30 nights way back in two thousand and six, five or 6. In 2008, we honored the 100 poets. And um, we're working on the taxable income thing now. And I think it will be done before schedule. Where does that
0: money come from?
2: Yeah, here's the thing, you know, I, I uh, uh, that poem I read for you, the, the Last Will of the Tiger, if you keep your poetry simple and focused, you know, you, all your poetry can't be about the full moon, the lovesick uh, dog in your heart, and the Taj Mahal. They've been done to death, and, and in your season, everyone does it. But you have to write about the issues that matter to people. Uh, A media house bought the global rights to it for an astronomical sum that I'm told is the highest sum ever paid for a single poem. And it came to me when I was doing a relief project in Ladakh, so the money was very useful. Uh, Anyone, whether that person is a tram driver, a barista in a cafe, a cook, a tradie, I must confess to you that I believe that we're all poets, that some of us know it. Most of us just don't know it yet. And it only takes 45 minutes for anyone on the planet, irrespective of background, with just a little help from someone who writes poetry to write their first poem. And if only we would concentrate on this. My personal mission is not to produce a large body of great work. Mine is to get as many people as possible to write their first poem in life, because the world becomes a better place with more poets in it. If we want change in this world, it won't come from our politicians alone. It won't come from our leaders, from our hard-working people. It will come from every section of society contributing to change. So how can, how can poets contribute to change? The human body is 70% water. I think the minimum that poetry is supposed to achieve is to raise moisture from our inner reserves. If you hear a sad poem, it should bring a little moisture to your eye. If you write a delicious poem... Perhaps water to your mouth. If you write a a sensuous or erotic poem, then it brings moisture to a sacred part of the body. And, And it's supposed to make a more sensible society. You don't look the other way when something sad or bad is happening. And if there's enough poetry in your life, you will not. And the world will be a better place for it. I think the academic world has done poetry a great disservice. Because by making it a subject for marks, for degrees and qualifications for students and children, uh, they learn to hate it. I've I've helped about 12,000 people or so to write their first poem in life. And for me, that's better than money in the bank.
0: That's that that resonance that you talk
2: about, isn't it? Yes, Hmm. yes. Uh, Today we've reached a point in Delhi where it's not just uh, VIPs and important people, but uh, kids cross the street with their moms in a market and say, hey mom, he read the tiger poem in my school, and they come across and ask for your autograph. It's a, it's a, it's a sign that uh, things are changing.
0: Poetry is coming. Poetry is coming. <laughs> well, thank you for speaking with us today, Emmett. Thank you, Brenton. Good to see you again. You can follow Amit's Poetry Project, uh, the Delhi Poetry, on social media. Just look up Delhi Poetry, that's P-O-E-T-R-E-E. And if you are visiting India, do drop into one of their many reading events. Uh, The project's also published an anthology called Word Wine, which contains some of Amit's work, as well as a rich cross-section of the diverse writing in India. And that's all we have time for this week. Please tune in every week, Thursday at 9 o'clock on 8.55am or stream from www.3cr.org.au. For up-to-date information on poetry events in Melbourne, visit www.melbournethespokenword.com. I am Brendan Bonsack. Thank you for listening.